Welcome to this Sunday's message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. Hey guys, uh, great to be with you. Uh, obviously on your screen, not so much in, uh, in the room with you. I don't know about you, but uh, me and my family, this kind of lockdown over the course of the year, we've been watching a lot more television than we normally would have been. One of the things we've been watching a lot of is Taskmaster, okay? Maybe you've seen it. Comedians on the, on the show together, they doing all sorts of crazy competitions like uh, try and figure out which egg is the scotch egg without breaking them. That's sort of funny thing, but I mean, maybe that doesn't seem funny. Uh, but when they're comedians, it is funny. Um, but the other thing we've been watching a lot of is things like cop dramas. You know, the kind of the gritty, uh, who's the bad guy? We don't really know. Trying to find the, you know, the corrupt policeman or the missing person or, you know, the person, the murderer or something like that. Um, we've been watching a lot of these sorts of things recently. Um, really, really enjoying it. One of the things with these shows, these kind of cop drama shows, is there's often, there's often a twist that happens. And usually what happens is uh, there's a bit of a build-up, there's a, there's a reveal, uh, and then the episode ends. You know? And then you've got you know, to wait until the next one um, as, to kind of find out what happens next. Well, when I, I, I was kind of thinking about this, and I kind of looked up the, the definition of a plot twist. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and I kind of I, I looked at a few definitions, but then I made my own. Um, so so this, is what, this is what I thought. A plot twist is an unexpected moment or, or, or reveal or, or, or several moments that, that kind of follows on from a bit of a build-up and then has like unforeseen consequences. Okay? Things happen because of this twist. Now, we're in a series at the moment called Who Is This Man? Looking at who is who is Jesus? We're kind of following through the, the final moments of Jesus' life. And, uh, and I believe what we're about to read is a twist. Mark has deliberately written what we're about to read as a twist. And I think it is a twist with, with some pretty massive implications, but it is a twist that we can miss. It's, it's actually quite subtle. So, so, so we're going we're gonna to go through it. Plot twists have got build-ups. They've got the moment, and they've got kind of the aftermath. We're going to look at uh, the build-up, the moment, and the aftermath to this twist that Mark's trying to get across to us here. So we're going to read of Jesus' crucifixion. This is Mark chapter 15, verse uh, 16 to 37. Um, it's quite a long passage, but stay with it and imagine what's happening because it's quite... Um, it's quite good. <clears throat> I mean, it's the Bible. It's always good, but you know. Um, okay, Mark chapter 15. Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Okay, the, Jesus has been captured. Pilate has is, uh, is, is, is got Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they began uh, to mock him. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, so save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of the Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some heard this, they said, look, he's calling Elijah. They ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to him to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry then, Jesus breathed his last. Amen. So, so when it comes to a plot twist, there's a, there's a, there's a build-up. And, and usually good twists in, involve kind of building a bit of an expectation about what we think is going to happen, and then they kind of come along and like subvert the expectation, right? So, so I was thinking, good, good example of a twist that most people probably would know, so I'm not spoiling it. Uh, in Star Wars, in the, in the Empire Strikes Back, hopefully you've seen this, um, Darth Vader reveals to Luke that he is uh, Luke's father, right? And that's a massive twist because it's totally against the expectations that we thought was going to happen. Building up to a twist involves setting expectations. And so this is what Mark does. And he does this right at the start of his story about Jesus' life. Okay, what, what he says right at the very start is this story you're about to read, this is good news about a person called Jesus who is the Messiah. Good news about a person called Jesus who is the Messiah. If you don't know what what Messiah is, basically what it means is is, is king. It's a word that had become uh, meant to mean king. So So this is good news about Jesus, the king. But the thing is, there's already a king. His name is Herod. He lives in Jerusalem. Uh, he's, he, he's, he's called king, but actually the real person in charge is the emperor, Augustus, in Rome. Okay, so, 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 so this is good news about Jesus, the king, but he's not king yet. He's not yet king. So, so Mark sets this expectation as we go through the story that this is going to be about what Jesus is and how he becomes king. How he becomes king. So we kind of we, so we go through the story. Jesus kind of does his thing. You know, he's kind of healing people. He's teaching. He's he's, he's having conversations with, uh, with 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 people. And then there's there's a moment about halfway through where he, he says to a, he asks his disciple Peter, "Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am?" And Peter goes, "You're the Messiah." Yeah, you, 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 you're, you're the real king. Not, not Pilate, who's kind of in charge on the behalf of, of the emperor Augustus. Not, not, not Herod. No, no, no. You're the king. You are the king. And from that moment on, the story shifts. 
From that point on, Mark presents the story as Jesus getting closer and closer and closer and closer towards Jerusalem, the capital city, the seat of power, where the palace is and where Herod lives and where Pilate lives as well. And as this happens, I think we're meant to see an expectation beginning to build that when he gets there, something significant is going to happen. It's like this grassroots movement that's going on right now is going is to go global. It's going to go national. Jesus is going to become officially the king. Herod's going to be gone. Pilate's going to be gone. The Caesar's going to... No, this is, this is going to go big. When he gets there, something significant is going to happen. You know, one of the other shows I watched a lot of uh, during lockdown has been The Crown. Maybe you've seen The Crown. Uh, it's kind of about the royal family and kind of goes through uh, Queen Elizabeth's life. Um, but in the first series, when, when the queen becomes the queen, there's a few things that happen. One of the things that happen is there's a coronation. There's a moment where she gets the crown and everyone's watching and it's kind of this big moment and, and, and they say something like, long live the queen or something like that. Uh, it's a coronation. There's also a procession, right, as she kind of goes through the streets and everyone's cheering and waving. Um, and there's a moment where, where, where she's kind of, she, she, she's raised up above everyone else and uh, she kind of begins to rule. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a coronation, there's a procession, and there's a bit of an enthronement moment. Um, now, that's for us, you know, modern or whatever, but, but back then it's not actually that different. They're, they're expecting the same thing to happen for Jesus. A, a, a coronation, a procession, and an enthronement. These three things are going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and he's nearly there. He's nearly there. But what begins to build as well is he's, he starts to clash with the authorities, and they start plotting to have him killed. So, so, so there's a tension that begins to build. There's a tension that begins to build. I don't know about you, if I'm watching something or me and my family are watching something and it gets tense, we tend to like stop it. Like pause, go, cup of tea or something, and then come back and you've kind of calmed down and it's not so stressful. Things are getting tense here. They're getting tense. And, and, it, and at the height of this tension, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and there's, there's kind of people waving and crying and shouting and stuff. This is it. This is the moment. This is what we were waiting for. And then he's captured and he's led away. And there's a, there's a bit of a trial that happens. And he's, he's brought to the palace before Herod, but Jesus is in chains and Herod remains on his throne. And then Herod sends him to see Pilate, and Pilate isn't removed from office. He decides what to do to Jesus. This is, this is different from what we were expecting. I thought he was meant to be king. I thought he was meant to become the Messiah. What's going, what's going on here? This is different from what we were expecting. And then he's accused, and then he's charged and he's, he's led away. And, and what happens next? Well, we've, we've just read what, what happens next. It says that Jesus is, is, is beaten and mocked by soldiers in the palace. Then he's led with the cross through the city, and then he's nailed to the cross. And, and, and uh, he's lifted up, and they shout, hey, come down from there. You're meant to be Messiah. You're meant to be the king. You should come, if, you're, if you are going to be king, you will not die on this cross. Yet, within a few hours, Jesus has 
suffocated to death in his own blood. Jesus is dead. The revolution is over. The movement is finished. It's a failure. But that's not how Mark sees it. That's not how he depicts it. Those are the events that happened, but he presents them in a different kind of way. These final moments are presented as a twist. You see, we've seen the build-up, this expectation for Jesus to become king, and then Mark presents a coronation, a procession, and an enthronement. He's led into the palace, he's mocked and he's beaten. He's given a crown and he's given a robe and they, ca- and they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! And for Mark, this is the coronation. This is the- and then he's, he's led through the city streets and there's insulting and there's jeering and they're laughing at him and they're mocking him. And this is the procession. Now, unlike, unlike previously, you know, the, the, the crown that Jesus gets isn't a, a gold leaf crown like, like this image here. It's a crown of thorns. And the procession that Jesus has through the city streets isn't the one like Caesar had when he entered into Rome. Instead, Jesus is stumbling weakly out of the city of Jerusalem. And then Jesus is is taken up to the hill and he's nailed to the cross and he's lifted up for everyone to see. And this is an enthronement, except he's not on a throne that's gold and ornate like uh, Tutankhamun's. Uh, No, this is a a blood-stained wooden cross. But it's still an enthronement. It's still him becoming... This is the twist. This is the subverted expectations, right? The the reveal or the moment, however you want to describe it, this is it. Jesus' horrific, brutal, tragic death on the cross is what makes him king. His death is not a failure. The crucified Christ is the coronated king. And, and, and like any good twist, this has got remarkable implications, right? But, but, but it, it changes your perspective and, and all sorts. But Jesus, the thing that you see clearly is that he is a very different king from Herod or from Pilate or from Caesar. This is a king who accepts humiliation and death. He chose to fulfill his mission from God rather than protect himself or, or, or his reputation, or to fulfill the expectations that people had for him. No, he chose to follow what God had called him to do. He chose to die. And there's a, there's a word for this attitude. It's not a word that we use very often, and I think it's a word that we frequently misunderstand when we do think about it. It's, it's this word. It's the word meek. M-E-E-K. Meek. Jesus is meek. Throughout his procession, his coronation, and his enthronement, he is meek. Now, I'm not sure what you think of the word when you think of the word meek. Uh, I tend to associate it with weakness, something to be scorned, something to kind of look down at, like, oh, they're meek, you know, something like that. Well, biblically, meekness is not weakness. It's not about being feeble or frail or, or a pushover. It's 
It's more like having the ability to do something, but like not doing it. But in that, it's not idleness, and it's not, uh, it's not being blasé or non-committal. It's, it's actively being non-active when it is within your rights to act. Or you could say it's, it's forsaking your rights by acting in a way that others would not act. Maybe I've just made it even more confusing for you. Um, but, but, but let's try and see what this means for Jesus. Right? So, so with Jesus, he allows himself to be crucified. He allowed himself to be crucified. This, this whole process is something that he lets happen. He could have not. He could have decided, no, it's not going to happen. And, but, no, but he didn't. He could have claimed his prerogative, but he didn't. He laid it down. Instead of resistance, he was peaceful. When the spectators of the cross cried out to him, come down from there, he could have done, but he didn't. And when they said, you could save others, but you can't save yourself, he could have saved himself, but he didn't. He chose not to. See, Jesus' death on the cross is not him being weak, it's him being meek. That's what sets him apart. He didn't, he didn't win his throne in some like epic throwdown between you know, Caesar and, and Herod. No, no. He, he humbly, meekly, lets himself be killed in order to be a different kind of king. And because Jesus is a different kind of king, then his kingdom is going to be a very different kind of kingdom. This is, this is the aftermath of the twist. You know, that meekness is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, Paul in Colossians says that as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that is, that is God's people, the people who choose to follow him, it says this, we ought to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Ever ask the question, what does a real follower of Jesus look like? It's someone who's trying to be more compassionate, more kind, more humble, more patient, and more meek. And these things are all linked, but there's something about meekness specifically that I think is about how you respond to what other people do to you and say to you. That's, I think, a key part of what meekness means. So, so Peter, the very Peter that we looked at earlier, Peter comes back, and in a letter to the church, he says this, if you suffer for doing good, retaliate. No, he says, endure it. This is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Jesus' attitude to the cross is the example that we have for the way that we live our lives in his kingdom. And Peter goes on, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Jesus didn't give the witty comeback. He didn't, he didn't step out. He didn't prove himself. He didn't try to avenge himself or reciprocate. He made the conscious choice to not do and not say what he could have done. And this becomes the model for what it means to live as a Christian in relation to other people. And I think especially 
in situations when relationships get difficult. With, with arguments in your families, with conflict with your colleagues, with tensions with your boss, with frustrations with the government, meekness. Hey, here's a challenging one. When you've had poor customer service, meekness. That's the model of what it means to be a Christian. If, and I tell you what, if you're not challenged by that last one, I don't know what would challenge you. I get frustrated, to say the least, when I've got poor customer service. Even in an argument or when you're being provoked and you have a perfect comeback, you don't say it. Even if you could totally prove them wrong, you hold yourself back. Even if others mock you, call you pathetic, call you weak, laugh at you, hurt you, whatever it might be, in humility, in patience, and in peace, you hold yourself back. This is... This is remarkably challenging. This is, this is seriously challenging stuff. But this is what it means to live in the aftermath of the twist. This is what it means to live in the light of what Jesus has done on the cross. You know, we live in a world that says, prove yourself, defend yourself, you know, get your point across, fight for your reputation, assert yourself, and claim what's rightfully yours. And Jesus says, no, 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 be meek. Just to clarify, though, this, this involves wisdom and, and, and right choices. I'm not saying, you know, don't pursue justice, that sort of thing. I'm saying when we choose to follow in Jesus' footsteps, we're choosing to follow the one who knows everything and knows ultimately the very best way in which we can live our lives and the very best way that the world could be made better. So, 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 so when we say meek, we're not saying, you know, go and you know, do whatever or, you know... There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wisdom that we have here, but there's a reason behind it. And I, and I just want to unpack what is that reason and how do we live more in meekness? So the first reason is Peter actually says, when Jesus was on the cross and he didn't retaliate, the reason why is because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, God sees it. God sees all of it. All of the moments where people have mocked you. All of the moments where you could say something, but you choose not to. God sees all of it, and he's, he's better than us, and he's more fair than us. And he says that he will do justice. And either that is justice that is, that is given onto Jesus for what he's done on the cross, or it's justice that's given onto the individual. Either way, it's totally and completely fair. We don't have to... We don't have to try and create this or make... No, no, Jesus is the one who will do it. Being meek requires trusting in God to repay fairly and truly in a way that we ultimately can't. But there's another reason. Jesus himself said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When people practice meekness, there's something that, that is given in response. And if you just think about what Jesus did, he, he meekly let himself be killed... And in response to that, God rose him from the dead and he's now seated in heaven and it says that God gave him all things. By being meek, Jesus received everything. And the promise is the same for us, that he has prepared a place for us. So when we see him face to face, 
we get to receive what he has received in some part. When we choose to be meek, there's an inheritance for us. So, so how, do, how do we do this? Well, it's pretty simple in some ways. I think it involves spending time individually with God and trying to work out what this means in practice. Because I can't give you every example and every application. It requires you, it requires us to work out what it means in practice, in your workplace, in your families, in the relation to the, to the government and the council, that sort of thing. But there's, maybe, there's, there's a deeper, maybe there's a deeper how. And, and, and I think it's this. Jesus' death wasn't just a statement or an image or a model. Jesus' death accomplished something. Continuing on from that verse, Peter says, look, if you, if you suffer for doing good, endure it. This is commendable before God. Christ suffered for you, and uh, he's leaving you an example. And then he says, look, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For we were like sheep going astray, and now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus' death on the cross was the moment where he offered to take from us all of our sins, all of our mistakes, and all of our failures, and die with them. And he did this in order that you and I may leave behind these things and live progressively more and more following in his footsteps in the light of what he's done. Meekness only becomes possible when we return to God when we repent from the things that we've done wrong and return to God and we let him wash away our mistakes and call us again into living in a way that honors him and follows him there has been a twist and it's a it's a staggering and it's a breathtaking twist it's the kind of thing that you could think about for a very long time and never really fully comprehend all of it there has been a twist. And now, there is an aftermath. That Jesus would become king of all things by dying on the cross, taking away our sins, and providing an example for what it means to live in his kingdom. This is the twist. And it means that the people of the crucified king live in meekness, not in weakness, but in meekness, trusting that he's in charge and trusting that when we do, there is an inheritance that we receive. This is challenging. I mean, I, I, I prepped all of this and I found it incredibly challenging. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't there something to it that is so counterculture and so un, unlike the rest of the world. We're going we're gonna to sing, uh, we're going to sing a song. And I, I, I want to encourage you, in the light of this, to kind of fix your eyes more and more on him, on Jesus. This whole meekness thing, it, it flows from having your attention on Jesus and letting him transform you from the inside out. There has been a twist and there's a wonderful aftermath and I want to encourage you guys to live in it.
in the way that he wants, in the way that he loves, and in the way that he encourages. Let's, uh, let's sing. Thanks for listening to this message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. To connect with us online, visit tkc.org.uk. We hope you'll join us again soon.